0: Welcome to the Falcon Chambers podcast. Falcon Chambers is the only barrister's chambers that specializes in property law and related topics. On the podcast, our barristers discuss all things related to their specialist field, get updates on legislative changes, how current affairs affect the property market, discussions on important cases, and more.
1: Good morning, I'm Oliver Radley Gardner and I am joined today by uh, Michael Ranson and Fern Schofield, two barristers at Falcon Chambers who act for site providers under the code and by Camilla Chorphy who, like me, acts for operators and we are here to give an overview over things that the Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Act did and perhaps, as interestingly, did not do. The Act got royal assent on the 6th of December and we are going to look at four aspects uh, in relation to that Act. Um, So if we could start with you, Fern, you've got some uh, views on the way that the Act approached or rather didn't approach the compton Beecham problem.
0: Thanks, Oliver. Yes. Ironically, this is the number one thing which the Act does not do. One of the main reasons that this legislation was brought in, or that the c- legislative process was initiated, was to address the problem that had arisen in the Compton and series of cases, which we're all very familiar with, um, namely the problem caused by operators already being in occupation of land, and how do you deal with that where code rights are conferred by occupiers. This was also... as consulted on in the consultation that led to the legislation. Consultees were asked about what they thought the answer to this problem ought to be, whether the classes of people who grant code rights needed to be expanded. And there was previously a clause in the Act um, until very late in the day, which would have dealt with this problem essentially by disregarding The occupation of operators. Very late in the day that amendment was removed essentially on the basis that now that we have the decision in Compton Beecham that's all been dealt with we know the answer and it's all fine. I think one might query whether that was a wise decision or not in that it will leave the boundaries of what's established by the Compton Beecham decision to be worked out in the courts and tribunals rather than having a handy statutory section that we could all refer to. We know now from Compton Beach that you can essentially tune out the occupation of an existing operator. But how far does that go? In what circumstances does it apply? Lady Rose told us that we might have to make what she calls some nice distinctions. And I think we're going to have to start doing those in litigation.
1: And and Fern, do you think that... um, I mean, I... I one reading of compton Beecham is that it, it basically says that occupation is, is based entirely on a policy and how far you can tune out that occupation is probably dependent on what your view is of what the policy actually is. I mean, do you think the policy has been adequately articulated so that we know um, what occupation does and doesn't mean in a, in a particular case or is that still up in the air?
0: I think it's very much still up in the air. Certainly in Compton-Beacham itself, the decision in the Court of Appeal went into a lot of discussion about how occupation is a question of fact, different statutes, or how every statute that uses occupation has its own context and its own interpretation of what that means. What that means under the Code, I think, is something that still needs to be worked out, and those sorts of factual situations weren't particularly addressed in the Supreme Court's judgment. And indeed, I think... In compton Beecham itself, it was admitted at first instance that Vodafone was the occupier of the site, so we didn't really have many findings of fact on what it was that that in fact meant.
1: So Parliament's failure to act as a sort of Christmas present for the legal profession really in that score.
0: <laughs> well, it's good to have something to keep us all busy, isn't it?
1: <laughs> okay, thank you thank you very much, Fern. Now, another aspect of, of the law which wasn't touched by Parliament but was the source of fairly lively controversy was... Attempt by the Lords to introduce an amendment for a review of the code. Michael, I just wondered what your sort of thoughts were on that.
2: Yeah, I think we we see real interesting light being shed on political motivations by the way in which the bill, when it was just a bill, just a glint in Parliament's eye, was going through both Commons and, as you say, all of them in particular the House of Lords. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we all know around this table that the paragraph twenty-four valuation hypothesis is is at least pretty unpopular, amongst the landowner community. But they've got some powerful allies, because it seems that it's also really pretty unpopular amongst the House of Lords. And it's not just the kind of usual suspects, you might think, because we've got Baroness Stoll, the Conservative Chair of the Digital, Cultural, Media and Sport Committee, saying, and I'm going to quote from her here, she says, it seems to me that site owners are being asked to make sacrifices for the benefit of their local communities. But they fear that what is in fact happening is that they are being asked to give up income for the benefit of commercial providers gaining profit. It seems wrong that a bill designed to level up is making some of those affected feel that they are losing out. I mean, that's the conservative media chairperson saying that. And then you know, Labour also put the boot in. Lord Bassam, who's the, uh, the biz Labour spokesman, said... Clearly, something is not right when companies can almost unilaterally determine the level of rent that they are prepared to pay for sites, regardless of earlier agreements. So, you know, as the bill was going through Parliament, we've got all this controversy about the valuation hypothesis, and the Lords wanted Parliament to review it, or wanted there to be a review of it. And I think, if we're being fair, we can all agree there's some merit in that, isn't there? Because we're not seeing consensual deals as a result of the valuation hypothesis. And therefore, the valuation hypothesis is, one could say, actively hampering 5G rollout rather than facilitating it. But all these points were out there, and all these points were rejected out of hand by the Commons. There's no review. Now the bill has grown up and become an act. There's not going to be a review of it. And I think as Camilla's going to talk about, it's gone further than that. And we're now seeing that the paragraph 24 hypothesis... Is in effect entrenched in the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954.
3: Yes, and that's very interesting, Michael. Because of course the basis for the rejection of the review uh, was expense based rather than merit based. That's ambiguous,
2: it? isn't it? You know, they reject it because of public finances. Well,
1: not because there's no merit
2: in actually giving a fair price to landowners.
1: I mean, I suppose, Michael, the one counter to to the the two views that were expressed in the House of Lords, of course, is one that landowners historically might be said to have, have had a, a windfall in the sense that land that had no alternative use at all apart from the telecommunication scheme suddenly found that they had land that did have some value in it because operators required it, but that landowners are still in effect compensated on the basis that one of the components of the paragraph 24 valuation is the alternative use value of the site. So that the most valuable, realistic alternative use sets the benchmark, if any. And one might then wonder whether if there is no alternative use value, i.e. if the land is, is effectively valueless, whether there is anything that's being lost. That might be one counter. And I suppose the other counter is if when we try and develop UK PLC, we decide that the, the UK generally needs powerful uh, electronic communications networks and fibre-optic rollout, that obviously is a very very large capital investment that needs to be incentivized in some way.
0: I think it's also interesting that the consultation was very clear that they were not going to be reapproaching the valuation mechanism. I think there was nevertheless a lot of feedback received in the consultation that the real problem here is the valuation mechanism that wasn't reviewed as part of the consultation it wasn't reviewed as part of this bill and now we know it's not going to be reviewed going forwards.
1: Another topic which we can do no more than touch on really though following on from that is that Parliament has tried to pour oil on troubled waters by uh, putting in a mandatory notification of ADR into notices and that kind of thing in an attempt to, to get the parties to come to a consensus much earlier on valuation issues which in practice I think Fern and Michael Camilla I don't know if you, if you agree or disagree but my general sense is that, that, that it's still this divergence in valuation approaches that's fueling quite a lot of these cases into court.
0: I think it fuels a lot of the cases into court and I think it also fuels other divisions within the industry when landowners were receiving considerably more money for their land they were perhaps willing to concede on other points which they wouldn't otherwise have conceded on now that there's less profit in it for the landowner or indeed in most cases no profit at all landowners are less willing to be overly accommodating regarding other issues such as access.
1: And Fern, you were making the point in the RICS telecoms conference, I think, that, that we also see emerging from the upper tribunal cases, both sitting as the upper tribunal and in its guise as the county court, the sort of emergence of a, a rental tone with a strong hint from the judges that if you pull the arm on the fruit machine of the telecoms code, that is likely to be the payout you get. I mean, do you see that as settling down the disputes?
0: Certainly, I think we've had some quite strong guidance from particularly the upper tribunal in the Affinity Water case about that. I think we have yet to have enough time really to see whether that's going to lead to broader cohesion within the industry. Certainly, it's something that people are talking about a lot, and we've had a couple of decisions applying the Affinity Water table. I think, oddly, it will be the the absence of litigation which will show us that that's having what appears to have been its desired effect, but I don't think we've really yet had enough time to see the full how, that, how that's really going to play out across the industry.
1: That that, that neatly brings me on to um, the question of uh, the 1954 Act reforms, and I'm conscious, Camilla, that you've been doing a few cases in the county court under the 54 Act or are involved in a number of cases under the 54 Act. So I was just wondering if you could update us on what the what the Product Security and Telecommunications Infrastructure Act is going to be doing to the 54 Act?
3: Sure. Thanks, Oliver. Well, it's sections um, 61 to 65 introduce new provisions designed to bridge various what I think are, um, if not um, unforeseen and unintended, uh, uh, gaps between renewals under the 54 Act and um, code uh, renewals. Their combined object is to harmonise the position um, in relation to valuation of rent, uh, compensation, um, and procedure. Um, two preliminary points as to its scope. So the 1954 Act only applies in England and Wales, um, but there are uh, specific provisions uh, making equivalent reform to uh, Northern Irish legislation, but there are, of course, no equivalent provisions in Scotland. The other point to note is that, um, so far as the transitional position is concerned, uh, we have no idea um, when these sections will come into force and so the position in relation to extant 54 renewals uh, remains um, unclear for the foreseeable future. So obviously at present um, code agreements that are leases under the 54 Act are excluded from um, part 5 of the code. This means that uh, the valuation of rent is governed by section 34 and not by paragraph 24 of the code which critically imposes no scheme Uh, assumption. So um, the net effect is twofold. Firstly, on the actual level of rents, um, obviously the no network assumption mandates exclusion um, uh, from assessment, the element of any value attributable to the intention of the operator to use a site as part of its wider network. Uh, This means that code rents are ordinarily a fraction of those achieved under the 54 Act. And secondly, uh, the valuation process itself, as Oliver and Fern have both already touched on, following Affinity Water, in theory, uh, valuation has been much simplified and streamlined by reference to a table, um, an index, uh, by reference to uh, uh, finite site characteristics. The position is very different, however, in the 54 Act um, uh, arena, uh, which has although developed a lot since Hanover Capital, we still find ourselves... Um, litigating it in a traditional way with potentially uh, numerous uh, comparables and the usual disclosure arguments, which are usually concomitant. These disparities are, um, I think, it's fair to say, not only contrary to uh, government policy aims, re coverage, but are also accidents. Um, often, more often than not, there's no rhyme or reason as to whether um, any given ECA agreement. Um, is the subject of one or other regime, I think that's uh, fair to say. So 16, Section 61 of the um, PSTI Bill um, introduces a new Section 34A, um, and this clause essentially transposes the evaluation hypothesis from paragraph 24, essentially the no-network um, assumption. Um, but another effect of that is, of course, to remove the traditional disregards in relation to improvements, um, goodwill, Um, etc. But um, I think we have taken the view that these emissions aren't going to have a massive impact on uh, the process um, because, for example, um, paragraph 101 renders um, um, most ECA to be regarded as a a chattel in any event and it's hard to see what improvements Um, unless they're fairly substantive to a building or other structure are going to be disregarded in any event. So this means that certain well-known features of the 54 Act, such as um, inducement payments or uplifts for um, competition for sites between operators, uh, will be eliminated. No doubt there'll still be scope for um, debate about um, how the valuation hypothesis works within the Act, and of course the position remains very different in relation to uh, grounds of termination, um, but there's no doubt this is going to have a huge impact in relation to the conduct of litigation. And um, Michael and Fern, um, do you have any views in relation to how um, expert evidence um, may now play out in light of this reform?
2: Well, I think we're, we're plainly going to see, aren't we, a move away from what we all see as being the traditional 1954 Act way of doing evaluation exercise and the expert evidence that the court would would want. So, you know, when we're looking at valuers and we're looking at comparables, the expert evidence is going to be significantly different in this new this new world order. And I think the expert evidence is now going to be limited, probably, to issues associated with alternative land uses and the staged approach that we see in Vodafone and Hanover.
0: I think that's very right. But I think we have also had some indications from the tribunal, particularly in the Pendown case earlier this year, that even the Vodafone and Hanover stages may now be overly complex where we've had so much guidance from the tribunal. Really, it's been suggested we ought to be looking at the affinity water table and just
3: drawing our values from that. It's also worth adding that there are consequential amendments to the interim uh, rent provisions, unsurprisingly. The following uh, section, section 63, and that's new section 34b uh, to see which will incorporate... um, Compensation provisions akin to those found in um, the code. Well, there, no, I was just going to say under this provision, um, site providers uh, will be able to recover amounts for um, loss and damage which um, they can show are sustained um, as a result of the exercise of code rights. Um, it's interesting con- to consider what the scope of um, this compensatory provision might be if anybody else has any thoughts as to what sorts of losses this might conceivably be argued to cover.
0: We are now definitely moving out of the early days of the Code, dealing with new agreements and towards probably further cases dealing with what happens during the term of those agreements. We haven't had much in the way of guidance yet from the tribunal on compensation, and I think that's something we can probably expect to become an area
3: where there's further authority. I suppose there may not need to be... Um, any sort of top-up or addition in the 54 Act context um, in relation to national professional fees? Yes, typically those are added on to a section 34 rent.
0: Under the code they're typically paid upfront by way of compensation and if we're having equivalent provision in the 54 Act for that compensation there'll be no further need to top them up.
3: So, I think the only other thing to add is that um, Section 65, in order to achieve a measure of procedural synchronisation, um, uh, stipulates that the Secretary of State can make regulation to confer jurisdiction on the FTT uh, to hear such cases. So, we all know that presently many unopposed 54 Act renewals are heard there. And um, obviously, the tribunal um, uh, deals with um, code matters, and with the FTT specifically dealing with um, the less complicated. Um, uh, code applications. This aspect of the reform seems sensible in that it will synchronise um, uh, procedure with the substantive changes we've already discussed and hopefully um, limit the scope for outlier decisions, which inevitably lead to uh, more litigation.
1: So we've, we we ha- we are seeing, I think, the, the tribunal taking back control, to use that phrase, um, and and coming up with. Guidance for the parties in a sort of more conventional way. It's not quite the sort of starred decision that we see from Sportelli, the sort of guidance cases the upper tribunal can give. It's not a formal series of guidance cases, but it is a very persuasive pile of cases that the the tribunal has racked up in the last year or two. Um, that's that's really interesting to see it from both sides of the fence. And I, I, I just wanted to, I suppose, wrap up with the last thing that I wanted to draw attention to. I mean, there's obviously more in the act than we can cover, but the last thing that we um, that I wanted to look at was the fact that Parliament has done that which it declined to do um, when the code came into force, which is to introduce an explicit sharing right as a new code right under paragraph three. It's to be introduced uh, as new code rights CA, um, with supporting rights EA and the unfortunately named FA um, uh, supporting it. The, um, I'm quite interested what you think about it, but the, the, the right as granted is, of course, an unfettered right to share um, the use of ECA, and I think I'd, I'd make two points about that, electronic communications apparatus, that is. I'd make two points about that. One um, invariably any operator who seeks this right will seek a right not just to share the ECA, but to share the land, which is the subject of the code agreement. So it will, it will uh, I have no doubt that the wider rights than just to the kit will be sought, and the simple reason for that is that in most normal mast installations, any sharer will wish to have their own secure, discrete equipment cabin sitting on the ground and their own ability to run their power cables and their fibre optics or whatever it is, which will require use of land as well as the ECA. But but secondly, I'm not sure it's a revolutionary amendment on the basis that, to date, the upper tribunal has granted sharing rights, acknowledging that a feature of the modern telecommunications sector is the sharing of infrastructure to reduce the amount of sites and to make it cheaper and easier... So the upper tribunal has regularly under its jurisdiction under paragraph twenty-three given as a term of the agreement a right a right to share. It, not unlimited, the right to share has been um, a sort of is conditioned by the nature of the land in question, and obviously a right to share a, a mast in an open field next to a motorway is going to be more generous than a right to share a mast at the top of a school or a secure prison or somewhere like that. But, but I don't see it, uh, I don't see any of this much changing anything. Um, interestingly, this is being done also in conjunction with a new statutory purpose that's being introduced. We had two species of operators under the new code, the mobile network operator who provides the actual signal, the active uh, operator and then the um, infrastructure provider or the wholesale infrastructure structure provider or WIP, as we call them in the in the trade, who um, provide the passive kit. There is now a new statutory purpose, which is geared specifically towards sharing. Um, again, I'm not really sure why that was introduced on the basis that that seemed to me to be at the very least implicit in the fact that we had already recognised an operator who was providing infrastructure. But apart from noting that those rights exist and noting that they will, as a matter of course, now be sought in any any notice by any operator, my own sense is that we've had guidance already from the tribunal and the Court of Appeal in in the On Tower and Green case, um, that that the question of what sharing rights should be granted, um, is not limited to any particular minimalistic statutory right, but is is to be to be awarded having regard to the needs of the site provider, the operator, and the characteristics of the site. I don't know if any of you have any views on on whether this is an evolution, a revolution, or a damp squib.
0: I think it might be something of a tidying up job. Um, As you say, we've already had very extensive sharing rights awarded in quite a number of cases. The tribunal's clearly already alive to the need for operators to be able to share their ECA.
2: Now, there are plainly many, many other things that we could have talked about on this podcast about the Act. But I hope you found what we have discussed useful. And Oliver, this isn't the last that people are going to hear from Falcon Chambers about the new Act,
1: is it? Uh, thanks, Michael. Yes. Well, keep an eye out on our social media and on our website. Uh, there will be published in due course a paper analysing more provisions, including the ones we've discussed today, um, for you to download. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to uh, Michael Ranson, Fern uh, Schofield, Camilla chawfee and I'm Oliver Adley Gardner.
0: Thank you for listening. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast. We welcome any suggestions on topics to discuss in future. If you would like to get in touch, please visit the Falcon Chambers website.